Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of my podcast, Foolproof Mastery. Today, I have a special guest, Paul Dermody. Paul is an online coach who helps people reconnect their joy with food. He's also an online personal trainer, and he also has his own podcast. He's actually also been on over 100 podcasts, so I'm very grateful that he's here today to speak to me on healthy eating habits. So, Paul, uh, great to have you on here. Could you briefly talk about how you got into helping people heal their relationships with food? Sorry to... No, I'm too ecstatic. I get to eat your own <laughs> podcast, I have to say, and I'm very excitable, in, uh, as I'm sure you know. Uh, thanks, dude. I'm very passionate about this topic. Um, you know, one of the things I've seen across... Certainly the demographic of society that I work with is a real loss of connection to food. People have maybe lost the joy of um, maybe trusting themselves because they have to hit certain diet rules or certain rigid practices. And what I've built my career around, or what I like to think I've built my career around, is, is helping people create autonomy and confidence of choice whilst understanding the fundamental principles of weight management and maybe break free from this rule-based dieting. Uh, I think rigid, strict practices are worse across pretty much all important domains in life, including, say, physical, mental, and psychological health, and unfortunately, usually body fat as well, which is basically all of the diet anxiety and none of the progress. So whatever about your goals, whatever about the idea, you know, whatever ideas you want, whatever you want to achieve, to not experience joy in food to me is taking the ultimate gift in life for granted because fortunately for us we're in parts of the world where it is abundant and it's not abundant everywhere on the planet and we are very fortunate and i know there's an element of righteousness that comes in the fitness industry when people try and give this kind of advice i'm sure it's well-meaning but it comes across very patronizing and passive aggressive that you should be grateful you should think a certain way you should just get on with it I, i'm very empathetic to the struggles of a lot of people and at the same time, empathy is not enabling. You know, empathy is to understand another person's perspective. And hopefully, as a coach, be committed to their growth with no agenda of, say, my own. I want to see people not be a mini-Paul. I want to see them be the best version of themselves that they can be, the most self-aware and autonomous version of themselves that they can be. And our goals won't necessarily align, and that's why I'm probably a little bit keen on people understanding the fundamental principles but also having an element of introspective practice as well, because, you know, it's all well and good and knowing the principle of gravity, but do you want to bungee jump or do you want to stay firmly on the ground? I can't answer that part, not that last part for you. All I can do is teach you how gravity works. Similar to calorie balance, you can't have necessarily an opinion on that. It exists. What you can do is decide what role you want foods and diet, you know, nutrition and whatnot to play in your own life. And, and yeah, that's kind of a little bit about me. So I find reconnecting with food, reconnecting with the joy in food is it's actually kind of more like choose a behavior, accept the consequence, as long as you understand the accumulative sum of all your behaviors. That's my philosophy as a coach, as a trainer, quite relaxed and laid back about it. And um, yeah, Patrick, I, I love what I do. So pleasure to be here and a pleasure to chat about these kind of things. Great. So I know that you've had some very like uh, exciting like stories, some testimonials of people that you've managed to help. So I've had the browse on your website. You've like you've ha helped people in like a diverse range of like uh, problems with eating food. So for all, from people who are underweight 
who need to basically just eat more to people who are overweight. I've seen you've helped some clients lose up to 20 to 40 kilograms. So that's very impressive. And uh, in terms of like eating disorders and improving uh, relationships with food. So we want to be very sensitive, like with this topic, because not everyone has an eating disorder. So we don't want to make everyone think that they have an eating disorder or it could just be a poor relationship with food. So you've previously mentioned that you uh, potentially maybe had like some sort of eating uh, disorder or a poor relationship with food. Uh, would you like to explain that? Patrick, I believe if I had have gone to see someone in my teens, I believe I would have been diagnosed with an eating disorder. I do believe that. Uh, my binge tendencies, my binge eating was very bad as a teen. Quite debilitating, extremely limiting in life quality, and uh, just very, just very damaging. It. I've been asked by friends of mine, by people that I really like and admire, by people who work in the mental health profession, friends of mine that is like, um, not people who were analysing me by any means. At least I hope not. Uh, they were asking me to did it stem from anything early trauma, anything like that. I genuinely believe it stemmed from really bad fitness information. You'd have these steroided up people on the covers of magazines who weren't disclosing their use of anabolics. Uh, that's the problem I have, but the lack of disclosure, promoting certain diets, eat, you know, eat to shred up in just four weeks, eat to shred in six weeks with 10 years of training experience and a buttload of pharmaceuticals that they didn't talk about. So, you know, what was a 16 year old with no critical thinking going to get from trying those stupid protocols? For me, it was a very damaging list of problematic behaviors. Um, the, the actual realm of eating disorders is something I'm very sensitive to and something I tend to try and stay away from as a whole because, I, you know, the, the limits of my knowledge don't necessarily extend that far. What I'm looking out for as a practitioner, and what I think practitioners can do is have a process without making it obvious where you are screening for behaviours that could lead to eating disorders. For example, if you have a binge episode, a binge moment tonight, that, that, that's not necessarily indicative of anything problematic. But if you suspect patterns whereby people might be walking themselves down the, you know, the garden path, then obviously that's something that you can be very sensitive to and understanding to and, and speak about and maybe refer out. Um, because if you think about a lot of these kind of disordered eating behaviours, they have to stem from somewhere. It becomes from a faulty belief or a faulty piece of information. But it's particularly worrying to me and particularly damaging, Patrick, that many of us will have heard one piece of information at one given time from someone who's not in any way qualified to give us that piece of information. And because it's been delivered in such an absolute manner, we believe it and then we reenact that subconsciously on repeat for the next how many years of my life. Like if I say to you, Patrick, never consume chemicals, never consume chemicals, they're harmful. Um, but the chemicals are just basically the makeup of something. Like if I say don't have, you know, dihydrogen monoxide, it's been responsible for the deaths of so many people. You take that sentence back into simple English, water, water drowns people. You're not going to drink it. So you can see how you can actually spin something to be quite damning and make it nebulous. And if nebulous terms can mean anything, they don't really mean anything at all in the first place. So we see that so much with things like another you know, another thing is, you know, avoid sugar, right? Avoid sugar, very common one. And what are we talking here? Like a gram, 10 grams, 20 grams, 50 grams, 2,000 grams. What if you're diabetic? So there's always kind of context to every situation. And 
certainly from my point of view, and I suppose this is my bias, the lack of critical thinking I've seen manifests itself as really harmful diet behaviors. And it is usually based off one piece of information that doesn't really fit anywhere. Like, you know, I, I love some of my aunts, but they'll say random things to me like, oh, I'm off the bread again. And you, you listen and go on, I love you. Bread is a hundred calories a slice. You're showing a fundamental misunderstanding of the principle. And even my sister, my older sister will say to me like, you did well not to say something there. And I'm thinking, I can't, like, I can't, you know, this isn't a conversation where two people with a logical agreement are having a conversation. This is somebody who's been trying yo-yo diets and nobody gets through to their own family anyway. That's a bit of a tangent, but yeah, man, um, you're certainly right at the start of this kind of conversation. You say certainly not everybody has any kind of disordered eating behavior. Not everybody needs to be worrying about that kind of thing, but the, a lot, a lot of the demographic that I work with, you know, absolutely do feel the the strain and the constraints of being shackled by very rigid dieting practice. And there is quite a thin line between, say, disordered eating patterns, mid eating patterns, and just really rigid crash diets. You know, they they can be one and the same, especially if your mindset is a worsening sense of on the diet, off the diet, with absolutely no middle ground. Okay, perfect. So, uh, yeah, I said you previously talked about this before. It was uh, it's actually because we're recording this the second time. So I don't know if you've actually talked about your experience with your relationship with food in your other podcasts. So sorry if yeah. No, I have I have Patrick on my own podcast. I've talked about it. I've just I've disclosed quite a lot of the the issues. I, my business, my whole philosophy, Patrick, is kind of based around. Um, a lot of the experiences that I went through, because when I started to learn about a lot of the evidence-based strategies for, say, breaking binge eating patterns, I felt that a lot of the evidence base had been written for me. I felt like someone had analyzed me as a child and gave me all the information that everything that I was reading, I was like, intuitively, I did that. I, you know, it, it almost got so painful that I had to make a change in my life. And I did that, and I did that, and I did that. And, you know, you, you, we mentioned... The reason you're talking about we talked about it in the last podcast is because my internet cut out and we decided to record again. Mm. But you know, we talked we talked uh, in the last episode, and we can talk about about questioning your own beliefs. Like that that was a big help to me, becoming very aware of the role of my thoughts and questioning. You know, where are these thoughts actually coming from? If, you know, you you have a continuous stream of chatter in your head all day, twenty four seven how much of it that is consciously created and how more to the point i don't know if anyone can consciously create their industry of thoughts all day long you know i can sit here and think about life and all of a sudden it's like oh dinner needs to be cooked at seven no paul back to the present on that <laughs> but you know are those thoughts even consciously created are you aware you're having them who has influenced these things and are you questioning why you have the attachments that you've put yourself onto that make you suffer um, and I think that's one of the biggest things in terms of breaking any pattern is being able to question why you attach yourself to something. We see it all the time, Patrick, and I'm sure you're very aware of this. You know, people who live and die by their football team. I love football. I love it. But the idea of getting personally offended when someone upsets a team I enjoy is bananas. And we see across various domains in life, whether it's nutrition, whether it's football, we develop attachments to things and thoughts around us, and they run our lives. And I, you know, do whatever the hell you want. I don't care what anyone does in their life, you know, whatever, have at it. But as far as I'm concerned with nutrition and with, say, body image and the more personal things, when you don't have the skills to 
to question the attachments, question the why, have that growth mindset and have that critical thinking that comes. Um, I think it can be a very detrimental thing. Dieting itself can become very detrimental when you don't have those skills because dieting and the attempt in the pursuit of fat loss or body composition change is not inherently bad or wrong or ineffective or anything like that. And I mean this in, in a very respectful way. But, you know, dieting comes down to a principle, but certain people really struggle. And if someone struggles with something, it, it's probably you. It's probably your perspective. And that can be very comforting because that means that it's fixable. You know, if the problem is the world, then it's fundamentally screwed, if that makes sense. Yeah, I really think you're a breath of uh, fresh air in this space because he talks about the bread example. And there's so many people uh, giving out myths, which are like zero evidence based. And they just propagate like with the breads, like unless you have celiac disease and you like fit your bread in into a healthy, uh, healthy eating pattern. There's no reason you should get rid of bread from your diet. I also see I have some friends. They're like, oh, if I have fruit during a, uh, a main after a main meal, I'm going to get like fermentation in my stomach. And like zero of this is based on evidence. It's all myths which propagate. And they there's also some people on social media. I'm not going to mention any names who also deliver like harmful information on diets, like these detoxes, which are doing more harm than good. Oh man. And they are doing more harm than good. And you know, we have, we have to question our own role in this too, because the reason these things sell is because there's, you know, there's a group of people to sell them to, but I mean, Patrick, me and you have discussed this before. If I told you, right, you're going to, only think in black and white absolutes about dieting for the next 20 years. You're going to get all of the dieting anguish and all of the anxiety. You know, you're going to be thinking about every single meal, food, ingredient that you eat. You're going to be constantly obsessed and trying the exact same things over and over again. Oh, and you're not going to get any of the results. In fact, you're going to get the opposite of the desired results. You would never sign up for that in the first place. People sign up for these things all the time, even if they don't realize they're doing it. It's like they signed up for some detox diet. And, and I, I don't say this with a self-righteous tone. I'm really not trying to come across like that. I'm trying to say this in such a way where like, people can see these patterns that are very harmful and work through them. If you're signing up for detox diets or fat diets or crash diets, all, all you're doing is creating this rigid restriction that's, that inevitably is going to break. It's going to break. So then you're just kind of on and off the diet for years and years and years. But when you're on the diet, you're worried, you know, how long more do I have to suffer through this? And when you're off the diet, it's, oh, I need to start being good again. So you never get free. You never get free from that trap. And, you know, I've talked about it before, Patrick, the kind of the fuck it button mindset of like, well, I've had this one thing now, the diet's completely destroyed, therefore I'll quit and I'll start again in the future. That's a problem for future me. But that's one of the most harmful things you can do because it's not how calorie balance works. And, you know, I spoke to a client last week and I even said something I wasn't trying to be in any way overly profound. I was just trying to be a little bit more on the logical side. You know, I said, if you have a, a, a moment, of fuck, a, fuck good, <clears throat> a fuck good moment where you have a thousand extra calories, yeah, it's not ideal and you might feel a bit shit in that moment. But if we look back in a year, in a year's time, if we look back, you, you had a thousand calories, you made nothing of it and you just moved on as if no transgression had been committed. That's fine. It won't have any problem in a year. You won't have any problems in a year. If you do the thousand calories, go into fuck it mode, have 10,000 calories to punish yourself, back on the diet, fuck it mode eventually, 10,000 calories to punish yourself, fuck it mode, repeat that by 52. 
and you're about 52 weeks in a year, compared to the previous example of just getting almonds. You're going to see two people in two very different places. So on a population level, I believe we're having the wrong conversation. I think most claims, like social media lends itself to the most exaggerated claims. It lends itself to the, shall we say, between people who argue at least, it lends itself at least to the, the least charitable interpretation of any conversation, which means dialogue always breaks down. People go for clickbait, people exaggerate things that work, that don't. <clears throat> and while it's not very sexy, Patrick, one of the, the biggest tips I give to my client base who are say, struggling to adhere to anything is just establish regular eating patterns. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, supper. Just get that right. And if that becomes too hard, regularity, the inclusion of a breakfast, lunch, dinner, supper mindset, whatever amount of meals you want, you get to choose. If that's too difficult to implement, then how are you going to implement anything more rigid? Like, how are you going to start going low carbohydrate or detox or ketogenic with all these nonsense fat diets on no bedrock of structure? If someone came to me like yourself and said, Paul, I'm thinking about trying a ketogenic diet, I'm like, yeah, Patrick, you gotta, you know, you got to dip your toes in the water if you want to because I know you have a good structure to your nutrition. But when it's if you like mental masturbation to basically give yourself an out so that when dieting becomes too hard, you can kind of quit and blame someone else. I think that's something that people really need to check in with as well. And we should have enough about us right now to know what claims are exaggerated and what claims aren't. You know, if, so, if something sounds a bit too good to be true, uh, it probably is. So, yeah, there'll always be a charlatan ready to take advantage. And the irony is, you know, a lot of the best nutritional scientists in the world, a lot of the voices of reason, their message is so generic and boring that it doesn't get to the top of algorithms. So the people who we need to listen to most aren't climbing to the top of algorithms. And Johnny lose 100 pounds in six minutes is climbing to the top of algorithms because he's saying exactly what people want to hear. So it's kind of a, I, I have no solution to this, Patrick, because it's bloody human nature and what the hell do I know? But it's, uh, it's quite depressing in a way, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I completely agree. Structure is probably one of the most important tips, having like regular meals for me. Because like, for example, when I was out in Vietnam, like I met a few, uh, yeah, for people that don't know, we met out, out when we were in Vietnam during the heart of the pandemic. And there was like quarantine. We, yeah, we, t we sort of broke the rules, sorry. And we went outside <laughs> and worked out. You were training one of your clients. Uh, yeah, to, uh, teaching some animal flow. And uh, yeah, when I was out in Vietnam, I actually met a few people that are really into like the health and fitness sphere. And they would be like, oh, you only need to eat one meal a day. If you don't eat one meal a day, you're mentally weak. And they, I tried this, like they're like, the, they, they made this like so-called OMAD diet, one meal a day diet. And they're like, it's the optimal diet. And then I was trying this and it was literally making me go crazy. Then they were like, oh, you need to fast like three days every two weeks. And after a while, I just was like, this stuff is crazy. I need to just go back to my normal habits. And uh, now I have like three, four meals a day, but it's a structured routine. And yeah, I don't, I don't, anyone that gives me advice with no evidence, I just try and like forget about it. Do you know what, Patrick, it's just so easy to, you know, bad information is one thing, but when people are just projecting their own food fear and food phobia onto you. It's a different ballgame entirely. I had something similar. I was in Vietnam and I, I drink squeezed homemade orange juice every morning for breakfast. And I remember one personal trainer 
if you just come over to me on my way to the gym. And out of nowhere, I said, you shouldn't be drinking that. And I, I was like, shouldn't be drinking this wine that had full of sugar, with natural squeezed juice, right? I mean, technically, that's correct. But do you know what carbohydrates converts to as soon as they're consumed? Um, but that's beside the point, right? Beside, forget the technicality, forget the science, forget all of it. What if my goal, what if I don't care? Like, what if I'm recovering from an eating disorder and I'm incorporating back in foods I've traditionally demonized? What if my goals don't align with body composition? I'm trying to get strong. What if I'm an athlete who burns through 10,000 calories a day and I'm trying to, you know, keep my energy high with certain foods and drinks and things? Nobody has the context for anybody else's psychology, let alone their actual lifestyle, history, desires, wants, you name it. And I think it is one of the obvious telltale signs of an ignorant, uneducated, unempathetic mind. And I mean that technically. I don't mean that to lambast anyone. I mean that technically to suggest what somebody else should do based on their own definition of optimal. Like, I have many opinions on what, what um, constitutes a good life, right? I have also seen that many of those definitions of a good life completely conflict with, say, my sister, who's one of my best friends, who would have the opposite personality to me. So what me and her think is a good life are two very different things. She very much values stability and structure and, you know, for example, solid paycheck, bits and pieces like that. I'd be much more risk tolerant, much more risk tolerant. If my sister lived my life, she'd crumble. But if I said to her, you should do this with your resources, vice versa. You know, you have to respect that. So I think it's, if, if we took these nutrition advice snippets and put them into any other facet of life, Patrick, people would look at you like you're 10 heads. Uh, if someone won me today, Patrick, you should only spend money at one part of the day. Like, the hell's wrong with you? 50 euro at 2 p.m. is 50 euro at 8 p.m. Yeah, but actually, you know, there's actually greater compound interest uh, in shops at 8 p.m. Is there? How do, I, how do you know? Proof? You know, we would seek proof. We would literally seek proof if somebody made that claim. But somebody else tells you that there's some kind of stupid hormonal thing that happens at 8 p.m. that doesn't happen at 2 p.m. And we're all about that shit. And even if it happened, right? Even if it happened, who the fuck cares? Who the fuck cares? I don't care. There are so many worse things than whatever, than timing. You know, it, it, it beggars belief what people put their, their, their attention to. But like, I, I, I only care because I've been the person who couldn't critically think. I've been the person in bodybuilding gyms who went zero carb when he was, you know, a natural trainee with no muscle on his bones anyway, who then lost all his weight and couldn't function and had mental breakdown because I was zero carb and trying to work and trying to be 23 years of age. So I've, I've been the recipient firsthand of bad information. Patrick, I'm also ashamed to say I've advised bad information too. You know, I give... I, when my sister was younger, I told her that she had to eat breakfast. It was the most important meal of the day when I started being a trainer. My sister's never eaten breakfast in her life. So now she's trying to force feed herself bloody breakfast and her life is miserable. And then I learned through a bit of cop on that breakfast wasn't the most important meal of the day. And it's more about, you know, what you can adhere to and blah, blah, blah. About a year later, I had to go back and say, yeah, do you know that advice I gave you? I was wrong and I'm really sorry. And I think that's been one of the hardest hitting lessons I learned, Patrick. It's even if something technically was correct, even if it was, even if breakfast had been the most important meal of the day, my sister still had 25 years of not being able to implement it. Why the hell would a piece of information change her mind? Because I think you know this, Patrick, um, someone very clued in, someone very intelligent like yourself. It's not information that changes mind. You don't change my mind. I don't change your mind. It doesn't matter. We bring ourselves around when we're ready. Maybe someone else is the catalyst. 
you know, maybe someone else says something in a very inviting way. I don't know if you've ever seen the, these things online where like there might be an argument that someone makes and it's a good argument, but they come across like such a dick that you want to resist it. But even though the argument's good, but then, you know, when you hear somebody say something that's very challenging to you, but they say it in such a gentle, nice, tender way that you're like, I'm going to need to check in with that. That was a really good point. But they didn't change your mind. They just invited you to do it without shaming you. Do you, do you know what I'm trying to get at? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Like if someone says an argument, but in a very like sort of impolite way, even if it's a good argument, but they deliver it like not very nicely i'm sort of like i don't want to listen to you because you're not being <laughs> polite right a hundred percent i think that's exactly the um human nature and human psychology yeah. 101 that kind of way yeah. like as, as soon as shame becomes the vehicle to transfer a lesson patrick it's over yeah but then there's also like this I, i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing it correct it's like the dunning-kruger effect where people become so clever that they stop doubting themselves <laughs> Well, it, and people become, yeah, so in the, the Dunning and Kruger effect across the spectrum, man, where stupid people overestimate their own ability at the start, so stupid people think they're really smart, then there's this valley of despair of self-awareness where you're like, oh my God, I don't know anything about it. And then there's the slope of enlightenment where it's, I'm competent, but I can learn so much more. Mm, yeah, interesting stuff. <laughs> but yeah, back Isn't on the, it? yeah. Going just a step back, back to the breakfast thing, like I used to, yeah, skip breakfast, but for me personally, having breakfast, it's a beneficial thing because it stops me snacking later in the day. So even though all these people are like, oh, fasting helps you live long, which is like zero evidence, like in human trials that we have never really looked at humans fasting. It's all based on like mice. So a lot of this is just based on like simple data they get from labs. Personally, for me, having a nice breakfast, even though I'm not hungry, I uh, it, it stops me snacking later in the day when I get my calories in earlier. So you need to see. I'm the same as you. Uh, if you if you presented something to me that said it was optimal, I feel the same. But even you know the other day, Patrick Andrew Huberman, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. And I, I know, yeah. Okay. He had a podcast on alcohol, and I remember listening to it, thinking, "Why am I listening to this? I'm probably still going to drink my odd beer." I love beer, not beer. And if you need someone to come along and tell you not to binge drink, you have a bigger problem than that anyway. So it's not going to actually change anything in my life. I'm still going to enjoy my casual pint and I'm not going to binge drink. Yeah. And like social interaction is also like, as we said, the simple things is what matters. And like social interaction is one of the biggest things which increases life expectancy in the literature. So having a beer with some friends, you talk, that's going to probably offset the, the negative of having a beer. And Patrick, how much fitness advice is actually driving people to become lonely, disconnected, unhappy individuals? I've had clients who, who are afraid to go to the steak restaurant because they can't count calories in the steak. Like, yeah. That's obscene. That's not fitness. Yeah. And like, there's also, it goes into a big range of spectrum, even things with sleep and stuff like Huberman, he, he says some useful stuff, but I've, I'm also seeing lots of criticism from him online. But some things he said was like, oh, you need to always be waking up super early, going outside, getting sunlight. Sometimes some people might just want to have a nice uh, late evening and have a lie in, you know, and then otherwise yeah. you're, 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 you're missing out on the social aspects by going to bed at 9 p.m. to make sure you wake up at 8 a.m. to get your morning sunlight. 
But you can get lost in a lot of that too, you know. I mean, he's smart dude, great information and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, man, I mean, what's optimal isn't always practical. Yeah, if something works for you, like I know you, you like the odds there, here and there. It improves your life, your quality, your happiness. Happiness is probably the most important thing you should look at. I think so, man. I, I do. I think it, that kind of self-awareness is something to really strive for. Um, I think it all represents it even... A, a, I think it's all a symptom of even something a bit deeper. Like, I think you need to have confidence. I go back to autonomy, ultimately, is what I'm trying to say. You need to have the courage to say, like... You know, what is it they say? That uh, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing a tomato doesn't go on a fruit salad. It's kind of like that for pretty much all things. Like, you, of, co of course, having a healthy diet is vital. I think that, that might get lost a little bit in my message. I'm, but I think we should be coming at it from the mindset of, say, inclusion rather than exclusion, rather than asking ourselves what we can't have. It's much better to ask yourself what we can do more of and what we could include more of and what nutrients and what, you know, good things we could include more of. And even that inclusion mindset might include things like your social life and your bits and pieces here and there. But at least when you're looking at it from a very inclusive rather than exclusive mindset, it just changes the perspective. Because, say, restrictive diets and, and health, say, a healthy approach, psychologically healthy approach, will say, it's much more of a perspective than it is a black and white absolute. I've had clients, uh, like you mentioned earlier, that up to 40 kilos. I've actually had one client lose over 65. Um, and if you met him halfway in his journey, you know, whatever, what assumptions are you making about a person? You know, we make assumptions about people in society. And I remember he told me this one day. He said something like, if someone saw me at this part of the journey, he was drinking a Diet Coke, or, or maybe he was drinking a full sugar Coke, I can't remember. And, and, and some treat thing. And he said, if somebody saw me carrying an extra 30 kilos, they might look at me with my coke and think what a lazy slob I am. He said this. And he said, they wouldn't understand the amount of changes I've had to make so far to lose 30 kilograms, you know, that kind of way. And so if, if you're asking me, is full sugar coke healthy? The knee jerk is, of course not. Yada, 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 yada. If somebody has a drink, a fizzy drink, a soft drink, at some point in their diet, halfway between losing 60 kilograms. Maybe that's the little catalyst for better adherence. Maybe that's the little break they needed, you know? So we shouldn't be too quick. So scientists will do their thing, and we need them. We need scientists. But we also need practitioners to come along and interpret science and merge it with anecdotes, as far as I'm concerned. So, again, you can come along, Patrick, and tell me all the optimal things on the planet tomorrow. All of them. Every single one of them. And it might make me the textbook smartest guy on the planet. I genuinely don't think it would make that much of a difference to my human side of my business. I really don't. That's why I like your philosophy, because you don't claim to be a, a nutrition expert. You just apply, like, the key principles that achieve results. You don't overthink, because there's too many variables, as you said, to take into account. Just go for the hard-coded principles. So I'm going to read you out something which I, I saw online, because, like, I personally quite appreciate what this guy is doing he's called bio lane and he's really oh, yeah and basically he he, re, he wrote a post where he said uh, try to reframe your thinking there are no specific health or longevity foods there are no bad foods there are healthy patterns of eating and unhealthy patterns of eating healthy patterns of eating are not a secret but they aren't sexy so no one discusses them because they don't sell so don't overeat calories, choose lean proteins, focus minimum processed foods, eat high fiber and plenty of fruits and vegetables, 
uh, eat enough fun foods to still enjoy life and not be an asshole around your friends and family and so that you don't develop an eating uh, disorder. So I think the last point is the most important. So still have fun foods in your diet. So you still like the, the odd beer here and there or even on regularly, actually, I think you have beers. So because that's built into your diet, you know, you're, you're actually not fighting against it, right? So you know, if you want it, you have it. So the actual act of like, putting a barrier and stopping yourself, it's sort of, it's bad in the long run. Do you like, do you agree with what I, I read out? Oh man, I think that there's so much wisdom to it. I, Lane Norton's a smart dude. Um, and do, do you know, it's actually something I noticed about you, Patrick, in the training sense. And I've said it to all a few times, you train in a kind of like a calisthenic style, but a lot of body weight training. You're very attuned to your body and you're, you, you're a very serene, very calm guy. Um, you, the kind of person who I've always got the impression speaks because he thinks what is about to be said is worth saying. And you're not the kind of guy to just come out with a load of nonsense unless you actually uh, believe what you're about to say and you're a very curious person. And you are, in my opinion, in the training sense, what you're talking about in the nutrition. You're someone who's almost so connected to his own body. You can kind of, as far as I'm concerned, maybe I'm picking up on this wrong, but it's always the impression I've got from you. Your training is very like a flow stage. You seem to always be aware. You don't seem to follow a program. Maybe you do now. You didn't seem to follow maybe a strict program back when I knew you in Ho Chi Minh yet. You all seem to maybe be on the dip bars and the pull-up bars. And that kind of graceful body movement always reflected to me your internal state. At least that's the impression I got, right? In the same kind of way, I think that's what we should be aiming for in nutrition. I think there's a kind of a I think there's a kind of a, um, I mentioned when we were talking before, like an ego death. It's not the right term, it really isn't, but I'm trying to just, trying to phrase it in such a way where it's understandable. It's like, drop the shoulds, drop this arbitrary, I should, it's good, it's bad, and just let it be. You know, give yourself unconditional permission to eat anything you want, always, comma, choose a behavior and accept the consequence. And I think when you merge those two things, um, and they were things that me and Orla have been actually talking about for, for years and years, because she's quite passionate about this topic too. I think you developed the freedom to make choice. So because I love a beer, because I can always have the beer, I don't always want the beer. You know, I had I had one last night with dinner, right? We went out for dinner, me and Orla, we had pho, and I was trying to get that pronunciation right. I had chicken pho and <laughs> one beer. Not, like, because I can have the beer. You know, I wouldn't have let myself have the beer when I was a bit younger. But imagine if I was battling it and battling it and battling it and battling it and I eventually let all my willpower go and then I eventually, it's like, ah, fuck, you know what, I've destroyed the diet, I'm just going to have it all. But I'm not enjoying it when I'm not having it. I'm not enjoying it when I am having it. Therefore, my diet's never fun. And it's always on my mind. So, yeah, um, what you read out is, is wise. I know BioLane is a very popular figure in the industry and with messaging like that, I think that helps a lot too because for all the science, BioLane can very much you know, speak of very easily, which is definitely helpful, but it definitely lands. It's usually the reassurance of like, don't be too much of a dickhead with strictness that lands, in my opinion. That's what really lands with people. I think that's what they need to be reassured of. People don't necessarily need to be told to diet harder. They actually need to be told to diet a little bit softer, but for, you know, always. Diet, in quotation marks. Yeah, so yeah, people like BioLane yourself, they've really helped me personally avoid eventually getting an eating disorder because I was hanging around the wrong sort of people and their advice was sort of starting to imprint on me and like 
yeah, if I didn't start following uh, BioLane, if I didn't meet you, I wouldn't have ma managed to maintain like a good relationship with food. So I'm very oh, grateful for that. Well, I'm very grateful to hear that, Patrick. Um, so thank you for that. But, you know, it's in you. It's clearly you got apprehensive and skeptical of advice. So you decided to maybe seek out a philosophy that was more in alignment with why you want to live. But you, you, at some point, you start to question a lot of these rigid practices and you kind of see the people maybe offering the advice and think, oh, is someone I really want to live like? Yeah. And look like a lot of fun. Exactly. And also, like, a lot of this... A lot of well, people on social media are really like demonizing processed food. And uh, I think this is also like a disservice to the people that work in like food safety. It's like, like, for example, beers, like even cakes, they've all gone through like lots of f safety. Like there's food, food safety engineers who have guaranteed that this food is safe on our plates. So it's only really their overconsumption. So as you mentioned, in one year's time, you won't remember what you ate today so if you want like a dessert today like an apple crumble or a mars bar and it fits into your program go for it patrick if you asked any of these egypts to define processed foods they'd give you a half baked half pregnant answer they wouldn't know what the fuck they're talking about define processed foods uh unhealthy they people hear buzzwords and they don't have any bloody context for it and it's so unhelpful to people it's just you know the, the natural food fallacy eat don't eat anything that's unnatural okay so what's the claim only eat natural things yeah okay this is something david robert grimes said to me and i think it's really wise okay so we're saying don't eat anything unnatural only eat natural things that grow in nature okay arsenic are you going to pour arsenic in your porridge no it'll kill you therefore immediately the natural food fallacy falls down immediately at the first hurdle without a context without a quantity the dose is in the poison makes the dose. The devil's in the details. You know, a knife. Is a knife stabbing you? Is it butter and toast? The knife isn't bad. The, the knife isn't bad. That's a stupid sentence. You know, and unfortunately, so many people are quick to say, oh, I saw Patrick Razor off using a, a knife really bad. And then all of a sudden, like, oh my God, it's bad. It's bad. People are like, why? Why is it bad? You know, and, if we, I, I think we'll never combat misinformation, but what I think we can do is have conversations like this where critical thinking arises substantially. Because yeah. also, like, a lot of these toxins which people talk about in the social media, so you mentioned arsenic, like, some of the populations which eat lots of fish, uh, like, are really heavy, heavy metals, they're the ones that live the longest. So they have lots of rice. Because, like, the fact that, like, the body is actually good at like getting rid of things itself. So just having like a food where someone says like there's a toxin in it, like there's there's like metals in the air we breathe all the time, you know. And so again, Patrick, if you ask them what toxin specifically, what toxin, Patrick, these are the same people that go banging lines of coke on weekend drinking beer like me toxin these things are toxic doesn't stop them when they want to have a party session like i mean but a cop on wouldn't go miss but yeah i've had that before genuinely where someone has said you shouldn't have something because of toxins and i just said which toxin yeah no response yeah it's a myth yeah well a lot of these things are myths or some of the, a lot of these things they're just investigated in rats and then they think humans are rats and <laughs> 
<laughs> and, and you know what, Patrick, too? A lot of these things are like semi-true and half-true. So, I mean, yeah, if something is toxic for consumption, you don't want to overdo it. That's a valid statement. Or, you know, if something, you might be encouraging a diet of um, whole food, minimally ultra processed, where a lot of the nutrients are taken out and, you know, you need more of them to get full, which means more calories. Like, that's really, really good advice, right? So if I say to you, you know, you're probably better off to have a delicious hearty bowl of oats for breakfast than a pizza, that's good advice because what you eat affects how much you eat and the, the oats will satiate you for less calories than the pizza. So calorically, economically and nutrient wise, the, the oats are a better investment in a habitual diet. So that, that's a fair claim. But then you can kind of spin that and be like, well, oats are natural, pizza's not natural, bad. And it's like, no, you bellend. That's not what was said. It's one influences how much you'll eat later in a day. Well, so does the other, and they're going to have two very different effects on, effects on satiety, hunger, and fullness. There's nothing to do with natural. And you can see how these fallacies can make sense, because they have a little bit of sense to them. You know, if they were completely outrageous, you wouldn't listen to them in the first place. Their, their danger comes in the fact that there's a little element of truth to many of them. And I think the only thing more dangerous than, say, no knowledge is that tiny bit of knowledge that sounds like it could be smart. Yeah. And like, yeah, talking about the oats and stuff, like to the low, low carb dieters, like I've never seen someone overeat oats or quinoa, you know? It's insane. People say that about fruit. You shouldn't eat fruit. I have never once in seven years of coaching, hundreds of clients, I have never, ever, ever had someone come to me and said, I couldn't stop at the watermelon. And I said, <laughs> once I cracked it, once I, once I put the knife down the middle of the water, I just couldn't stop. Never had it. The grapes. And it's insane. Because then all of a sudden, you have carbs demonized. So that rules out fruit, bread, oats, all confectionery. Then fats are obviously traditionally demonized. Egg yolks, nuts, blah, 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 blah. So then you're just, what are you supposed to eat? I think what happens with a lot of diet information is people see that poop foods, for example, like pizza, like confectionery, chocolate, etc. They're relatively high calorie, relatively low nutrients. And it takes a lot more of them to get any kind of perception of fullness because, you know, they're not very fibrous and they're not very nutritious. So then obviously they become easy to overeat. So then what's the conclusion? Carbs make you fat, which isn't inherently true. It's the potent mix of high carbohydrate, high fat, hyper palatable, low nutrient, high calorie foods that contribute to a much higher caloric intake. And that context isn't as easy to sell on social media versus the three foods you should never eat if you want to stay lean. And with that context, you can be then very deliberate. I went to a party Friday night with my friends and I had two slices of pizza. Two. Because what would the whole pizza satisfy that two didn't? So I got the connection with food with my friends. I got the taste of New York City style pizza, which I adore. I had two slices. I took the behavior and the consequence and I loved it. And then you're done. Um, the pizza didn't do anything. I didn't wake up the next day, you know, heavy or anything like that. I didn't give up on my diet. And what I'm trying to literally become is a walking embodiment of the principles that I preach, basically for my clients. Not so I can keep projecting my, you know, my uh, un unprocessed issues onto my clients, but actually that I can say, look, you can be healthy, you can be strong, you can be fit, you can be flexible, and you can choose. My friend, who's also a client, was at this party, and he's off the beer completely. So he didn't touch anything because he's on the fitness journey. I was like, go oh, you. You know, this party doesn't need to be calorific to be fun. We just need you here, you the person. So two different places, 
in two months he might be a very different person just like I might be a very different person and these stupid, stupid rules are stopping people from actually going and having fun and maybe stepping into new roles and new chapters in life. Patrick, when I travelled at the start of Asia, I gained 15 to 20 pounds because I couldn't, I couldn't say no to the food and the drinks of the, of the countries that I was experiencing and less movement. My logic was this, and I'm, I still say I have no regrets. I can always lose 15 pounds. I can't get back cocktails on New Year's Eve in the Philippines again. I can't get that back. Well, you know, not as easy. So this is a value system. And you could look at me and think, really, is it, you know, do you really want to satisfy that much? Like, yeah, I do. When I'm traveling, I do. That's what I want. Um, you don't have to do that. And I don't think you should do it. I don't think anyone should do anything. But I think you should have the power to choose and the calmness. Because when I did that in the Philippines, one guy was with me. He actually, we talked a lot about this topic because he had a similar journey to me, binges and whatnot. But I don't quite think he was as far ahead as I was. And he, he kind of looked at me when I was eating and drinking. And he was a bit like, like almost like, you're really going to do that? And I was like, yes. And, and, you know, a lot of people get triggered and get angry about comments like that. But I was trying to give the highest interpretation of charity. He wasn't commenting on me. He was commenting on himself. He was talking to himself at me. So it's very important for me, Patrick, to genuinely embody the philosophy that I um, talk about. Because while it's easy to talk about flexible dieting, like Patrick, I still take myself to the gym and train quite hard to, you know, three or four days a week as well. So this isn't some lazy lifestyle at all if anything it's actually quite regimented and fun it's just got that flexible undertone cool yeah and like i love your philosophy i actually apply it on a daily basis so like yesterday for example i was having some chocolate i had like two two pieces of chocolate and i was going to have a third one and then your voice your voice came into my head and i was thinking yeah what what would the third satisfy that the two didn't and then i actually stopped myself yeah, Amazing, having, having the, and that was like completely your philosophy, like the, the anecdote with the, the three and eight slices of pizza. Oh, it's so cool, Patrick. I appreciate that so much. It's really gratifying to hear this kind of thing. It really is. So thank you for that. You made my day, I have to say. Oh, perfect. And yeah, also the dose, as you said, is what makes the poison. For example, like uh, Rasputin, he's a famous guy that they tried to poison in Russia using cyanide, he was actually microdosing with cyanide, which is like the most toxic thing to humans. And still they tried to poison him and it didn't kill him. So like nothing is as poisonous as it actually seems, unless you're taking like, yeah, unless you're getting like radioactive. <laughs> but that's it, isn't it, man? Most things are actually exaggerated. Like if you look at most fitness claims, the, the insinuation is like, you'll be destroyed if you don't do, or if you do do this one thing as opposed to maybe the pernicious harmful effects of 20 years of abuse of a certain thing. Yeah, for sure. And like, uh, for example, sugar, sweets and beverages, they're getting a bad rap now in the, in the industry. And like, for example, all of this evidence is based on, as I mentioned, uh, studies in rats. And for example, they're feeding rats like the same dose that a human would have to drink like about like 100 or 200 cans of soda. And if you drunk 100 or 200 cans of soda, you would first die from overhydration. Like your bladder would burst. Then, so yeah, it's a lot of myths here. It's just it's such little context, isn't it? For sure, yeah. And so if someone here is listening and thinking, I have like a, a potentially a dangerous relationship with food or one which needs to be healed or improved, what was your like first tip? What would it be to help someone improve their relationship with food? I'd probably encourage 
people based on my experience to do a little bit of introspective work first, whether that involves, whether you have the skills to maybe ask yourself the right questions and to maybe take a Socratic question approach, um, or whether you want to read about it or whether you go through therapy, just, just to make sure that if you're looking to heal your relationship with food, again, I go back to it, it doesn't matter what advice I give you if the undertone is still all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking, false dichotomies. Like to be on or off the diet is a false dichotomy. It implies that there's only two extremes and there's no middle ground. So that's the intervention that I would suggest. But I think people benefit from that anyway, man. I think people benefit from being able to question their own thought process and develop a maybe a meditative process, a curious questioning process to become very aware of maybe previous attachments and genuinely cut to the heart of why previous diets have failed, however we're defining fail. Um, before you go starting anything again, because there's a certain freedom that comes from the no longer being off the diet or on the diet mindset. If we give it an analogy, if you see a, a crash diet, literally imagine a train that's a, that is a crash diet and you keep getting on that train and then the train keeps crashing, you know, eventually at some point you can stop getting on the train full stop. You're no longer getting harmed by the aftermath of the, the repeated crashing of that train. It's kind of how I see it. You need to almost step away from the idea that you can be on or off the bandwagon. There's no more bandwagon. You can't be on a diet if you're never, you can't fall off it if you're not even on it. So that's kind of the first step I would suggest to people. The second then is to just try and understand a few core fundamental principles. You don't need to track nutrition. I'm not saying you need to track nutrition. What I'm saying is you need to understand it and be aware of it. That if you think about calorie balance and have a cognizance of protein intake, I don't think you need to complicate it much more than that. If you can't say it here and honor those two principles for any prolonged period of time, nothing more complex is probably going to work for you, in my opinion. Um, and then obviously routine, 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 structure. So that when you do travel, go on holiday, have your normal working day, in mindset, you know that you generally eat three to four times a day. So if you are out of routine for a little while, say you're on holiday or you're traveling, you could still have the mindset of breakfast, lunch, and dinner as maybe not optimal as it is. But instead of being your usual 8.5 out of 10, you go back to being a 6 out of 10, as opposed to what most people do is where they try and be 10. And because they can't get to 10, they go back to zero. So they're the three main things that I feel people really benefit from Patrick. It's having a, an introspective process of some degree, where they're asking themselves the right questions and they're being very aware of thoughts and previous patterns. Um, understanding a few core fundamental principles that, that will sustain you and um, routine routine and structure and what what could be a question someone could ask themselves like an introspective question it, I, it, it, I suppose it depends what the actual struggle is but let's just like why do I genuinely want this like what do I think I'm going to feel what feeling am I going to get from this like what what, what let's do a pre-mortem what am I going to do the next time those stressful thoughts arise and I usually quit my diet? Because it will. What am I, I'm going to use, let's say people use the weighing scale all the time, Patrick, and they use it to define their worth so they give up when it's not going well, right? Because the only thing that will definitely happen on fitness journey is that the scale will go up 100%. It's the only thing I can guarantee you. So preemptive. How am I going to respond consciously the next time a familiar stress arises to make me go off the diet? I'm not talking about eating one specific food. I'm talking about that kind of quit mindset. What am I going to do to ensure that there's consistency? What patterns, what behaviors am I going to break? 
you know, who am I going to stop listening to in my pursuit of this health journey? Who am I going to listen to a bit more of? Maybe it's myself, maybe it's someone else. What I've seen is the, it's such, it's such a personal aspect that there's no, there's no, um, there's no right answer that applies to everybody. But one thing I like to almost reduce it down to, and I rarely speak in absolutes, but in many instances, we're either responding to a fear or we're responding to a very consciously created value. So I'll give you an example. There was a notoriously quiet person training month across the industry earlier this year where um, you know, I had a quieter month than normal. Did I say year or month? It was a month anyway. There was a notoriously quiet month in the personal training year. I had a quiet month. A lot of friends of mine had quiet months. And I saw and I noticed a lot of trainers jumping on very gimmicky bandwagons. Very gimmicky. And I thought to myself, oh, oh, I know why you're doing that. Mm. And I saw a few people do that. And obviously that's a fear, right? If the income lowers, then I won't be good at business. If I'm not good at business, I won't have many clients. If I don't many clients, I'm losing my lifestyle. I better change behavior quick. And it seemed to be very fearful. Whereas if you have a consciously created value system, you might decide, well, business months come in waves. There's some good, some bad. I'll stay loyal to my principles. I'll continue to work hard and blah, 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 blah. Similar with nutrition. Um, you know, I, I don't exactly know what your, one's, your fears are. Maybe the fear is gaining body fat. So I've eaten this food. Oh dear, I've eaten this food. I'm going to gain body fat. Just, and then the mind goes into overdrive as opposed to maybe a consciously created value. I value connection and joy. This food, this meal that I chose was a representation of that value. There's no consequence-free decision. So the fact that maybe it didn't, this meal didn't contribute to my quote-unquote fat loss goal, but it definitely contributed to my sense of social well-being. Therefore, in the grander scheme, it was a good decision because it's consciously created value. So that, they're the kind of questions that I talk about. They're not sexy. Like you can, it's so hard to get this context across on, say, Instagram, but they're, they're the kind of ideas that I would try and discuss with my clients many of the times. And believe it or not, what keeps certainly the clients I've had that are successful, what keeps them adherent is surprisingly simple in theory. It's just extremely complex in reality. It's never been, never been what toxin to avoid. What fucking fallacy. When that don't eat the raspberries that had pests, it's never been that. Not once. Not, literally not once. And anecdotally, and it's a pure anecdote, Patrick, I've actually never met anybody that's reduced nutrition down to one thing like that where, oh, we don't uh, have our nutrition sweetness. We don't uh, take, uh, <laughs> you know. I've never met someone like that who's had a relationship with who I'd aspire to or who's able to actually piece together a logical, coherent train of thought. I remember someone recently said to me, we don't actually consume chemicals in this house. And I was like, excuse me? It's true. Diet Coke they were talking about. I was like, water? Like, well, you know what I mean? Chemicals, like harmful chemicals. I was like, well, no, I don't know what you mean. So which harmful chemical? Like, you know what I mean? Stop being difficult. And I was trying to be kind. I was like, no, you, you made it like such an absolute statement. Like, we don't consume chemicals. This isn't a, you know what I mean, slip of the tongue. This is like eating disorder passed down to children shit. So... Um, that's the kind of introspective practice, say, that, say, if I walk into a room now and I say to you, oh, you shouldn't eat that, Patrick, I'd love for you to look me square in the face and tell me to fuck myself, because it hasn't even, it's, it hasn't even engaged with your deeper reasons of why you're eating it in the first place, you know? Cool, and, like, you have some of your clients been a little bit more on the extreme ends of the scale where you're, where, like towards like anorexic or like bulimic like did you mind like defining these terms for people that don't know what they mean as well and so um 
bulimia obviously is when you eat food and then you might engage in vomiting, you know, self-induced vomiting behaviors. Um, anorexia is, well, I've learned actually a little bit more about anorexia. It's actually probably not a topic that I'm comfortable discussing publicly at the moment, because I'd still say my knowledge is too limited to say something that real anorexic victims or sufferers might actually understand that I don't. So that's probably, and I, w I probably wouldn't be able to have the skill set to work with somebody who's coming out of it unless they had very specifically chosen me and we had a long conversation. But um, yeah, I've, I've worked with people who have been in eating disorder clinics. I've worked with two specifically who have been in food addiction and treatment centers. Um, actually, one of the podcast spoke about her journey. And you see, I don't believe, I don't believe in many instances people are mentally unwell. That's not a blanket statement. There's obviously some that are, of course. I believe in many cases people haven't been given the tools to critically think. I still believe, and I, I know this might come across a tiny bit say controversial, that a lot of people are stuck in their black and white thinking and that is leading them into the role, the identity, the ego consumption of I am my eating disorder. But actually what it is is there's a small pattern that I have not had the skills to challenge yet. I don't have that ability to question it yet. I don't have that ability to get out of it yet. And I think whether it's a therapeutic process or fortunately for me, in my case, too, the people that I've worked with who have successfully completed that treatment, got away from that treatment and have gone on to live very normal relationships with food. Um, in, in many instances, it's, it's a, it's a, the, the disorder itself or the self-believed like, problem is actually a symptom of internal issues of maybe lacking self-worth, um, not necessarily being a particularly good critical thinker, maybe being too naive and too open to information that's particularly dreadful and harmful. I hope that makes sense, Patrick. It's a, it's a kind of a, a delicate topic and I'm trying to make sure I don't step too far outside my line. Like, have you ever got like a client come to you and say like, oh, sorry, I cannot take you on because you are like outside my zone of scope? Uh, I mean, I've, I've had two words in certain ways, but absolutely, yeah, I've, I've, there's been people who have been um, in very distressed states and I haven't detected that. It's probably because I haven't detected they were ready to let go. They were ready to, and when I say let go, let go of the identity and step into a I'm healing part of my life. I, I detected the sense of I have this problem and I am this problem. And I did, I've sensed I'm not been the person that, that was able to have the great happening. Okay. And is it also possible to have an eating disorder without knowing it? That's a great question. That is a really good question. I think so. Yeah. I, I think it's the kind of case that once you come out of it, you don't realize maybe sometimes while you're in until you come out the other end where some patterns you've taken are so normalized and denial, the denial that you live with is so strong that when you do finally break the, the pattern, when you finally break the chains of restraint, constraint, you, that yeah, you realize just how unhealthy your habits were. That's a really good question, but I believe so. Yeah, these are like sensitive topics. So I think, but I think you answered the questions very well, yeah. I'm trying, man. I'm trying because, you know, you don't talk about these things often. And when you're on a, when you're on a podcast, when you're chatting to someone like yourself, you do realize that, wow, like people will hear this thing. It's such a different dynamic than when me and you would have chatted when we were here in Ho Chi Minh. Yeah.
So, yeah, going back, yeah, onto a slightly easier topic, you talked about, like, protein intake. So I personally believe that, like, for, for people that know where protein is found, it's, like, uh, it's a little bit over, overrated. Like, you don't need to take protein to shakes if you know where to get your protein. But I think a lot of people, they don't know, like, where protein is found or they have a poor awareness of what, like, 20 grams of protein is for example like a person might have like uh some sort of yogurt and think that's adequate for protein so would you agree that out of everything like protein is probably if you're going to track one thing like protein and then probably like vegetables is are the most important things rather than calories yeah i'd, I'd recommend definitely Patrick, that people get a fundamental understanding of what a serving of protein looks like so then at least you can make it because I do think you're right. I think the idea of maybe overestimating what's in yogurt is commonplace. And I think it's the nutrient that most people underdo. You know, people think they need new diets, Patrick. Nobody needs a new diet. It's just anyone who's not maybe happy with their body fat percentage, maybe it's a bit high. The chances are they do overdo the fat content and the carbohydrate content of the nutrition and underneath the protein. And if you can just somehow flip that balance, you have a nutrition approach that's sustainable and doable. And it sounds so much less overwhelming when you say it like that. We just need to flip a couple of macro balances. But yeah, the, the, if you learn what a 25 gram serving of say chicken looks like or salmon or eggs, uh, if you do or tofu, protein, yeah. if you don't, or tofu, exactly our vegetarian vegan options, then you can kind of eyeball that portion and make sure that you're adding it to your meals. And, yeah. Um, maintain that sense of longevity 100%. And then vegetables, again, you know, I don't even think you need to worry about tracking it in as much as you just need to be aware, you know, just need to have a general decent awareness of getting a couple of handfuls of vegetables a day. Am I getting a couple of pieces of fruit a day? Um, because you can you can complicate or you can simplify nutrition down to an appropriate degree. And again, I, I think you mentioned complication earlier. I don't know if you agree or not, but I think, it, again, it's a symptom of something deeper. And I think it's maybe a, an unwillingness to face that this is, this is going to need to be simplified appropriately to a sustainable level if it's going to be in any way adhered to in the long run. So, um, yeah, the, a, little, a little period of time tracking nutrition to get a fundamental numeric and then therefore like eyeball physical understanding of what food looks like is so beneficial to many people. Unfortunately, a lot of people associate tracking with these brutal diets where if I ask someone to maybe track calorie intake for a period of time, what they hear is, eat this very, very narrowly defined calorie number and put everything into an app after weighing it to the gram. It's not the same thing. It's count your money for a week to get a sense of a budget. I'm not saying change it, even your spending habits, but just count for a week. Sometimes, Patrick, I ask clients to track their nutrition on an app without changing a single thing. Uh, people find that very hard. Like, what do you, really? It's a single thing? What if I eat, you know, such and such a thing? I'm saying, do whatever you want, do anything you want just track the nutrition and then people report back saying i didn't realize that certain foods were so high in calories so low in protein so high in this so high in that and then you know the discussion can be had is it something you'd like to keep is it something you'd be willing to change is it something you'd be willing to add and again it kind of goes back to that autonomous sense of change i'm not telling them eat x and y because i think that defeats the purpose of coaching i'm suggesting here we've created an awareness on a bird's eye view of your nutrition something, something needs changing here if you're going to hit your goal. Let's chat about it. Um, and even if we do have optimal 
binges of protein to infer and vegetables and all this malarkey, it goes back to it again, like what's sustainable and what's optimal. Not all, they don't always go hand in hand. So I try and let people do the thing when they're ready, if, if you get me. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. So yeah, just to backtrack a little bit. So I said yoga, but uh, there's some types of yoga which are high in protein, but I'm talking like Greek, like Greek, Greek yogurt, quark, or like cottage cheese is a good source of protein. But I'm talking about the yoga, the traditional one you see on the shelves, like strawberry flavored yogurt or whatever. Like that's And those little parts as well. I knew, yeah. I knew exactly what you meant for what it's worth. Yeah, and uh, or like for example, I know some vegetarians. They'll they'll have like a handful of mushrooms, and they'll say, "Oh, that's my protein for the meal," and uh, yeah. just having an awareness of protein. And and yeah, to talk about calorie intake as well, I, I'm not a big fan of tracking calories, but just knowing, as you said, where good sources of calories are. So I'll give you like an anecdote, for example, uh, well, a story. Um, me and my dad, we were at the beach, and yeah. He, he he was like i'm on the diet okay so i had like a really big uh like a sandwich personally with like some eggs inside and then he had like a big bag of like these new walker sensation crisps okay so like i probably had like maybe a big sandwich it was like oh you're eating so much and then i had the big sandwich is about five calorie uh, 500 calories or so okay and then I then checked, he had like this whole big pack, it was about 150, maybe 200 grams of these new like, they're, they're like these like naan, they're, they're these fried naan, uh, yeah, Walker sensations. And he had like 2,500 calories in a single meal. And then he was telling me I'm on a diet, like I don't really eat too much. And so my, luckily my dad's a skinny guy. He, he's normally, he's in, he doesn't snack too much. He's like in a calorie deficit. So this little snack won't hurt him, but uh, having a little bit of an understanding of reading food labels and like a big volume of food doesn't necessarily mean it's high in calories as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why the, the awareness comes in so much. That's why when I talk about tracking nutrition, I, I don't mean being meticulous to the nth degree, either. even if it's just involved looking at label. Sometimes it can help to put in an app for a week or two, depends on your perspective. Um, I think I think everyone needs to be aware because otherwise that's how you get like some kind of fallacy of I ate healthy, I ate healthy, and it might be like I had very high volume, sorry, I had very low volume, high calorie foods. Like the amount of people that smother everything in coconut oil and almonds for example, which isn't inherently wrong, it's just somewhat calorific. And then they think that maybe eating a chocolate bar is bad, but it's only a couple of hundred calories, and if it's the actual thing that you wanted, you'd have been better off maybe not to resist that in the first place, every now and again, so it depends. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're right, it's that awareness. I've seen things like that too. I, I did go out for lunch with a friend a long time ago, they told me they were keto. Um, and I don't know what kind of approach of keto they were trying, but they were smothering a wrap, natural bread wrap, smothering it in cream cheese and sauce. So not only was it not ketogenic because of the wrap, but it was just put hundreds and hundreds of calories in cream and sauce on it. And unfortunately, this person was grappling with the fundamental principle, couldn't really understand it, couldn't guess, couldn't understand why they weren't losing body weight. Um, and it's just one of those things, lack of awareness is what it comes down to, you know, and you don't want to be bound to or obsessed by dieting all your life. You probably only eat the same 15, 20, 25 foods in a given week. So would it not help to understand the calorie content per se? Yeah. So if we were going to give some red flags for some people, I would personally say like 
anything fried or with oil that should be like a red flag for some people to just at least have a like especially if it's processed to have a reading of the label or just to see how much you want to have because like the pack of sensations my dad had it was clearly written five servings so maybe you should have just, just had a fifth of the pack rather than the whole pack so i would say like but then also it depends on like your personal goals so for example people that like uh want to build muscle maybe for them it's not such a bad idea to like have a, uh, a tablespoon of olive oil on their on their vegetables but olive oil is very like calorie de dense like one tablespoon is about 150 calories so it also depends on your own personal goals yeah i, I would suggest in that respect again like you say personal goals just be aware just strive to be very aware i was in a restaurant yesterday um getting a sandwich and i asked an egg sandwich and the girl was fairly liberal in her pouring of the bottle of oil and i remember thinking oh shit i my sandwich now just doubled in calories and it is what it is but um again it goes back to why it's so useful to track these things because a lot of people don't realize that oil is so high in calories and they might be smothering it all over their dinner um yeah, it, it's hard to give an answer that's in any way interesting into this particular question, Patrick, other than the, the be very aware of the effects that food might have on the calorie balance and on your general satiety. If it's low yeah. nutrients and not very filling, it's probably going to leave you feeling very moorish. Mm, so that's your sort of red flag. Just think about like what will probably lead to satiety, right? When you say red flag, what do you mean? So like, for example some people they might not have like an understanding of what could be high in calories you know so like a fruit is very like it's quite a bit it's quite big right but it's not very um high in calories so for example you, you can basically it's basically impossible to go overweight eating apples for example yeah i guess we agree on that but for example like a red flag for me would be like sauces they could be high like uh, like drenching something in sauces or like, as you said, pizza, things which don't lead uh, to over, uh, which can lead to overconsumption. I would say, again, it kind of depends on the sauce a little bit. Things like mayonnaise and stuff like that can be, some, certain ones can be very high um, and certain ones can be a bit more friendly. But I think looking at the health patterns of the nutrition in a whole, I really think overall, if you're eating... If you're eating, say, four meals a day, 28 meals a week, and you have some kind of awareness of calorie intake, you're meeting your protein needs, say you're eating your fruit and vegetables, I wouldn't think too much beyond it after that, because if you're eating a calorie-controlled diet, even if you're not tracking, if you're eating some kind of portion-controlled diet, it's very difficult then to exceed that with certain kinds of food, because by the very nature of something being portion-controlled, it can't really also be exceeded, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. That'll be where I would stand on. Yeah, I agree as well. Like the regular meals is quite important. So if, for example, if you're having like three meals, even if you're having like a, a thousand calories in the meal, it's not necessarily, it's kind of hard to get like, I don't know if you agree, but it's quite hard to get like a load of cat, like more than 1000 calories in the meal. Would you say it's quite easy? Oh, it depends what you're choosing, doesn't yeah. it? It depends what you cooked and what you're choosing. If you're home cooking, yeah. You can be very economical with it. If you're, maybe if, if, if you're eating it out and they're, they're a little bit generous and they're liberal with their oils, okay, cause not so much. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, because I, I always home cook, so I'm forgetting that people are, maybe are. Yeah, you see, I eat out twice a week, I would think, so. Mm. 
I see from both worlds. I had that Saturday night and I got a bowl of delicious Vietnamese pho last night. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't Sorry. think I, I don't think the pho will be too high in calories. No, I yeah, I wouldn't think but, so. If it is, it's worth it. But yeah, so even if you're having like yeah three meals and one of them is a bit high in calories, it's not too big of a deal. Like my personal point is like when people start having foods outside of their eating window and they don't even like realize it, for example, yeah. it'll be like midnight and they'll be having like a big bag of crisps, for example. I think that could be where the problem is. I think cooking and having structure are two very effective forms of inherent calorie control. I think breaking structure and having pointless snacking, like you mentioned with them eating midnight is, I actually think like cutting pointless snacking is probably the most effective calorie control but there is. People think, oh, I need to track on an app. I need to be meticulous. Just don't need between meals. Or be very, 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 very deliberate if you do. Mm, yeah. And like some, uh, yeah, I'll give some tips. Maybe you can give some extra tips. Like similar to what you said about double thinking about what did like free satisfy uh, that te 10 won't or like 10 slices of pizza. Personally, sometimes I also like use the five or 10 minute rule. So I'll be like, okay, I'll wait five, 10 minutes. If after like five, 10 minutes, I still want it, whatever it is, I'll have it. Great. I love that. Uh, it, it's something I've used myself and with certain clients. I love that. It, paradoxically speaking, if someone was like, look, I want to just eat all the pizza around me. And, oh, I just want to give up on my diet. I'll say something similar. Give it 10, 20 minutes. Keep this in mind for next time. Give it 10, 20 minutes. If after 20 minutes, you still want to give yourself permission to destroy the diet. And people are like, what? And yeah. I'm saying, yep, that's what I want you to do. And again, the, that power imbalance, the people are so used to fighting it that when they have that permission, sometimes it just doesn't become as scary anymore. Or maybe they just wanted a little bit of something. And then they've waited the 20 yeah. minutes, so they actually do want it, like you said. Yeah, the problem is that sometimes I'm like, okay, in 10 minutes, I'm going to stop wanting it. So, <laughs> yeah, I need to have it now. <laughs> so I sort of know how the rule works. But... Yeah, something else I think people can do is just like have have a few extra hobbies, like learn a language. I know you're learning Spanish. Sometimes it can just be boredom and lack of things to do where the eating comes from. And now I'm learning Portuguese, Patrick. Oh, very good. <laughs> well, I have a little tiny bit of Portuguese. Now that you've mastered, now that you've mastered Masters. Spanish, and no, you're, I you've, you've Spanish done the podcast in Spanish now, so. Uh, yeah, but I wasn't, I, I would, I, you know what, that was one I did, and I would have loved to get a second crack recording it. You know, when you've done a podcast, and it happens every time, but it's double whammy in a second language, where you come away and you're just like, oh, I didn't do myself justice there. Oh. I'm better than that, and I know it in that kind of way. Uh, so you, you decided to pick up another language because of that? <laughs> Not because of it, no. I no. think it's actually really attractive. I think multilingual people, as a, as a, as a mindset, as a skill set, I think it's a really attractive thing. Um, I think part of it for me is the, the world we live in, the instant gratification world, the attention economy, the TikTok, the 200 pieces of content in an hour on scrolling. I think there's that. And like, what have you actually consumed with an hour on TikTok or Instagram? I've never actually used TikTok, so I don't know. But I assume not very much. Whereas with a language, you can't skip it. You can't fast track it. There's no cheat code. You know, again, go back to the diet thing and the crash diet mentality. If someone said learn a language fluency in 21 days, you'd think they're an absolute twat. If someone said this one Spanish trick will make you, you know, the best on the planet, you think they're a moron. It's so easy to see how critical thinking needs to be applied to stupid language promises because you know inherently you're not skipping the process.
end of. Yeah. End of. <laughs> well, with nutrition, same promises, for example, are met with hope. And I think it's because we all need to eat. We don't all need to learn languages. So to me, anytime I've ever met someone who learned a second or third language, I've always thought that that's a very attractive thing you've done. And I've, it's been really cool, Patrick. I've had some really wonderful experiences in Spain where random people have thought, leaned over to me thinking maybe just heard me passively and thought I was Spanish and started, struck up a conversation, even though then they hear the accent on me and they realize I'm not. Or people who are learning also chat to me and you meet some really interesting people along the way. And I, and I love being able to, I love having the skill to articulate myself in a second language. I think it's really fun. It's something I believe, I believe everyone should do it. I do. I don't go around saying it. It's, I'm only saying it now that to you that I have the opportunity, but I think you learn a lot about yourself by doing it. And it's really interesting trying to learn what you think and say it in a second language. Yeah, I agree. And like for the people that are waiting 20 minutes then that apply this rule that they can then learn a language. While <laughs> Not 20 minutes. Yeah, while they're waiting to have that slice of pizza. I just did the calculation. Like uh, if you do 20 minutes every day for a year, that's 120 hours of learning a language. And I think oh, it's like, I don't know how many hours it is to get up to a basic level, but I think it's around 80 hours maybe to be able to like well, get an L. My first year, Patrick, I did 20 minute podcasts every day for a year before I got a teacher. So I can kind of attest that it does help. Do, oh, yeah. do you have a second language, Patrick? I speak uh, French. Uh, I was learning Vietnamese uh, yeah, and Russian as well. Parlez-vous français? Oui, je parle français, oui. I was thinking about it, but I decided to go Portuguese. I met a guy um, in Malaga and he was like, uh, he asked me, Où est le, le castle? whatever was the castle. And I was like, the I started chateau. speaking in Chateau. I, was like, I started speaking in um, Spanish, but I started speaking really quick. And he said, no, no, I don't have any Spanish. And I said, French? And um, he said, yeah, 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 French. So I was like, uh, allez, tu dois, et puis, tournez to gauche, whatever. <laughs> I thought, hope this is right. And I kind of watched him go down the street and turn left. I was like, oh my God, I got it right. Very I good. got it right. Yeah. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> so I have a little bit of French, I have a little bit of Portuguese, I have taxi cab Vietnamese, and I have Decent enough Spanish. Yeah, very good. Zito, very good in <laughs> <laughs> But but yeah, so you said you were doing twenty minute podcasts every day for a year. For in Spanish when I was started learning, yeah. That's how I took myself to low, low no upper I was gonna say lower intermediate, upper beginning. Ah you and you then, were listening to podcasts. Yeah. Ah, okay. I thought you were making your own. Oh like where you, know, where you were like documenting your language this journey. <laughs> No, like, although that would have been fun to do now that I look back, that would have been fun to do. But no, I am, um, I was listening to podcasts every day, 20 minutes. And it really, really, really helped. And then getting a teacher took my level to a, a different place. Yeah. Maybe you should start doing some videos where you uh, chronicle your journey. <laughs> yeah. So are you, are you fluent French, Patrick? Are you like native? Fluent like French, yeah. I lived in Neuchâtel in Switzerland for about a year and a half and, uh, I was working in an oil refinery where they only spoke uh, French, so I had to force myself, yeah. And but a year and a half though, man, I was in Malaga for a year and I'm still not fluent Spanish. I'm decent, but not fluent. But for basically a year and a half, I was, I didn't speak any English. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. Orla, Orla was talking about doing the same thing in Spain, where she's talking about um, going to un pueblo 
Pueblo in Spain, a tiny town, to immerse herself right into the language. Mm, yeah, very good. You should do it, definitely. Like, languages is one of the best ways, I'd say, to develop yourself. Like, again, on social media, there's lots of, like, famous, um, like, what are they, like, uh, psychologists who are giving lots of neuroplasticity protocols and stuff like this, the top tips to learn. But I would say you're only a master in neuroplasticity once you learn a new language after the age of 20. And uh, I'm telling you, do you know, I was talking, I was at a party the other night, the same place I told you about earlier, and there was two Nicaraguan people, so we started speaking Spanish. And I don't know if you've ever done this. At one point, she was speaking, the lady was speaking to me, Barbara, and then I lost track of what she was saying because, not because I couldn't understand, because I could understand, but I thought, <laughs> oh my God, my brain understands these weird syllables. How has this happened? How does... <laughs> How does that make sense? I don't get now that my brain can compute these weird syllables that come together and make a second language. And I actually lost the run of what she was saying, thinking, <laughs> "How strange is it that she can now transfer an idea into my mind in this bizarre language?" Yeah, your ego got the better of you there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it always does, Patrick. Yeah, <laughs> but very good that you're using different parts of the brain. It's also good for like healthy aging, I guess. So yeah, good. That's Keep... fun. I want I want to be someone who can do be a, maybe a bit of a polyglot when he gets a little bit older. If I if I can stay with us, so. So I hope to come back. Sorry, I hope to come back in ten years, and uh, yeah, I want you to be speaking five, seven languages. Okay. Well, how many are you going to be speaking? Uh, I'll try to be one step ahead of you. Yeah. So whatever. Okay, so... so you're Vietnamese, French, English. So, so Vietnamese, I can get by in daily life. So it's not fluent, but I can make myself understood. I still try wow. and call my Vietnamese friends and we try and do like some Vietnamese exchange here and there. So Vietnamese, That's... yeah, French, Russian and English, they're the ones I can speak in every, like fluent basically. And then I'm learning German now in Switzerland. So you have three fluent languages and yeah. two more, two more like part-time languages. Yeah, so German now I'm trying to use on a daily basis because, yeah, I'm just immersed in the language. But in, in Switzerland, they speak, they speak a dialect of German, so it's a bit tough. I have a bit to go because I have a foundational enough French and a foundational Portuguese, so if I can get the two of them, I'll be four, but I'll still be one behind you. Yeah, you could, you're going to catch me up, yeah. But it depends. If you master four, I'd rather have four properly mastered languages, you know? So if you master them, you'll be ahead of me. <laughs> I don't know, man, because you're, you're already on, I mean, you're obviously probably not going to master Vietnamese unless you come back, right? Yeah. But German will take you to four. If I get there, yeah. But I think I should get there. I have like a, yeah, a plan of where I should be. <laughs> it's so cool, man. It's such a, it's such a wonderful skill. And I've never met anyone who didn't speak a few languages that didn't have an interesting story to tell. I think everyone has an interesting story to tell, but I don't know, something about languages that I'm very drawn to. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So yeah, we thought we, we talked about a lot today, so maybe just a few extra bonus questions. So there we finished off with like tips to like, uh, yeah, manage your eating. We talked a little bit about like, yeah, potentially learning a language. Uh, yeah. One extra thing I could add was that maybe have a, an extra glass of water that can also, sometimes it can just be first rather than hunger. So it, do you have any other extra tips or do you want to move on to the, the bonus questions? I have no extra tips. Um, 
I, I really don't know because I think once you start to figure out a little bit more of your personal why, I think the how is easier to solve. Okay, cool. So then we can move on to the bonus questions then. Hit me, Patrick. I'm okay. Sorry. So, yeah. Once you told me a very interesting story about how you, uh, you followed a very famous person and how you got to do a podcast with him. Do you know the story I'm talking about? Uh, Gary? Uh, Gary V? Yeah. Oh, yes. So I think this is a good motivational story. So if you could like summarize it in a couple of minutes for the viewers, I don't know if you've talked about this in your podcast or not. Uh, I don't even know if I've talked about it, where I was at the conference in Germany. Is so it? so um, I remember you said that you like, um, you asked him for a, an interview and then he didn't get back to you for a long time. And yeah. then one day he you, you got a random email in your inbox and then he's like, come to, where, where was it? Come to America? Yeah, I asked, I asked him on August the 31st or something. It was the end of August, it was the end of summer. I remember because I'd been on summer holiday in Barcelona the week prior. I went to a business conference thing that he was at and I asked him to speak on my podcast at it and I was shocked that he said yes. So he told me to just email him, just, just literally email him with the title of it there and then, like literally email him right there and then and he'd just respond to it. So I went home and thought nothing of it because, you know, he's a busy dude. I didn't think he was necessarily going to do it. Um, months passed, nothing. And then one January afternoon, I was in the gym waiting for a client. My client is, I think she's walking in the door at this point. I can't remember, but I, I saw the email notification come through my phone and I swiped down. And it was him. It was, it was Gary V's. I think it was actually his assistant, but it was from his address. And it was just a time. It was just like February 8th, 10.30 a.m., 30 minutes interview with Gary. See you there. And I thought, whoa, that's cool. But it had been, say, four or five months, so I had assumed it was completely dead in the water. So obviously I was buzzing. So flew to New York, got a 30-minute podcast with him. It was really fun. And how much did that whole trip set you back? Um, it was worth the experience. I can't even remember what the trip set me back, cost-wise. Probably didn't set me back much because I was staying. Uh, I stayed at my friend's house who lives in New York. So just flights. Flights weren't even that expensive. But, man, it was, it was worth it to get to chat to Gary about business. And he's a personal hero of yours, right? Hero's strong. I think hero is, is strong. He's someone I greatly admire and he's helped me a lot. But just for my own self-interest, I try not to pedestalize anybody anymore. You're your own man. But I think the moral of the story is, is that like, it doesn't hurt to ask, right? A hundred percent ask. Uh, even little things like uh, silly things, but even on airplanes, can I have an, you know, long, can I have an extra dinner or even a restaurants can have an extra this or an extra that and people are usually very accommodating and i think people are shy to ask for things i'm just not yeah it makes your life a lot easier when you just take the step and it also oh, improves your know. communication skills as well <laughs> absolutely absolutely 100 percent. okay so also how is your like your comeback co coming from your dislocated shoulder injury because i know you you for some people that don't know, you dislocated your shoulder a few times, a few times actually just by sneezing, if I remember. <laughs> Both shoulders, would you believe? And uh, yeah, when one went up with a kind of a yawn, that was, that was my left shoulder. That needed ah, surgery. I've, dis I've dislocated both shoulders three or four times each. One has been surgically repaired. One is, I know it's going well. I feel, I feel the strongest that I've ever felt in my entire life today. And I put it down to being less ego driven in the gym, much more smart about it. Um, still trying to get stronger, but just in less of an impatient way. I have a much better relationship with time now, and I think that helps. 
I think business language learning has taught me that we have a poor relationship with time. And that two, three, four years seems like a long time, but it isn't. Mm. So, yeah, no, I feel great, man. I feel amazing. I feel on top of the world. I really do. I feel so fit and I feel so strong. Uh, ironically, it's probably not the leanest I've ever been in my life, just in the context of the life that I live now. I've definitely been leaner in the past, but I don't think I've ever been a mixture of fitter and stronger and happier. Really. Okay, yeah, because uh, I've been following your workouts on uh, social media and you're, you're doing lots of very controlled exercises in like a very slow, controlled way, time under I tension. Try yeah, I try to. I, I don't even think about it too much as well in terms of time under tension, more so I think the goal should be to maximize muscular tension, whether that's like quicker reps or slower reps or whatever variable. Like, I think the goal should be to, to stress the tissue you want to stress in the right way. Um, and I don't think of weight as the tool of progressive overload. I literally just think of what do I need to do to apply stimulus to the appropriate tissue today? That's it. So sometimes it's a pull-up, offsets of 15. Sometimes it's heavy, heavy weighted pull-ups. What stimulus do I want to put in the tissue? And that, it just for me, it's a really helpful mindset because you don't get married or attached to numbers or a style but rather progress. And that's personal to all of us. Okay. And like, in terms of like, for people interested in building muscle, like you previously were into this sphere, uh, or you still are, I guess. Um, what would your advice be for building muscle? I think it would be to learn how to, I think, like, I think the best advice I could give you is to really do due diligence on a good personal trainer on a really good personal trainer, not just someone that you vibe with, because training is a tiny bit more nuts and bolts. There are some really important principles to adhere to. Like, you know, there's, without going too hard into the details, like you have to respect volume, frequency, and intensity, those three principles. Like, is it hard enough? Are you doing it often enough? And is there enough of it? So that's the first thing. So if I only do one set of heavy pull-ups, that's amazing, but it's not gonna change my body. It's not enough work. If I only do it maybe once a fortnight, I could be getting a little bit stronger, but maybe it's not going to change my body. It's not often enough, things like that. If I work out every single day, but I do 10% of what I can do, it's not hard enough to change my body. And then the other thing is learning a good range of motion, learning good control with the muscles. So if I was to simplify it in such a way where someone had never heard of the gym and was coming down to earth for the first day today, I would say, you're going to need to learn to pull things, to push things, and to squat and lunge and and extend the hips. You're going to have to learn those fundamental movement patterns. You're going to have to learn them well, and you're going to have to find ways to progress them over periods of time in ways where it won't always get to be more weight. It can be, but it won't always get to be. So it could be things like control or tempo or, you know, range of motion, whatever it's going to be. And you need to try and get strong and better across those variables over long periods of time. That would probably be the elevator pitch answer I would give before being able to give a greater context. But so, what I've learned through the TikTok here, Patrick, some questions just cannot be answered in any intelligent way without hours and hours and hours of conversation. But if I could provoke somebody to stop doing idiotic workouts that are just stupid things from influencers and start like getting better at, like people say, this happens frequently. People will say, I was thinking about like building a bit of muscle tone. I'll say, it's amazing, go you. And they'll say, I've been doing this workout. And I'm like, look, it's great that you're doing workouts. Fantastic. I love that you tried. I love it to bits. Unfortunately, the, the approach you've taken isn't conducive to tone back. And like, you're just repeating pull motions to tone your back. You're either pulling something from above your head or you're pulling something to your body. 
And that's pretty much as black and white as it gets in a way. So if you're looking to get a stronger back, you're going to have to get better at those skills. It's not about changing your workout up every five minutes, nothing like that. It's about improving at the fundamental basics with different movement patterns. And if you don't want to commit to the same 15 odd exercises for the rest of your life, respect. But those patterns are going to be the things that change your body shape. Okay, cool. And how does like um, sleep and nutrition come into the equation? Like what would you say with regards to optimum sleep and with regards to like meal timing, meal frequency? Well, meal, meal frequency and meal timing itself isn't necessarily as important as the habits that they instill. So d- directly, they might not change the energy balance equation. Directly. It doesn't matter if you two, three, four times a day. It's not the timing. It's it's how much can you adhere to it in a way that influences positively the energy balance equation or the calorie balance equation. So, so the structure might be a self-governing form of calorie control, and then the protein in every meal contributes, obviously, towards muscle growth and muscle repair. Sleep affects muscle tone muscle gain, fat loss, etc. Not again, because it directly influences the energy balance equation, but it influences everything that influences the energy balance equation. So if you're tired, you're making decisions in a fatigued state, you might be hungrier, you might feel you have less perception of willpower, less energy to work out. So it might affect, affect pardon, everything negatively that would otherwise be combated with a good night's sleep. So with, with things like meal frequency and sleep, directly they don't change anything in terms of energy composition, but they will have some bearing in influencing the other factors that all influence the energy balance equation that would lead to the results you want. So in simple English, you are better off to get sufficient sleep, partly because more time in bed is less time awake eating, but also because you don't want to be fatigued and exhausted and thinking about things all day and over stressed and already lost it and then meal timing it's not like eat at this one magic time for muscle growth it's more if you don't have structure and regularity and routine how are you going to hit your goal because most goals involve repeatability for sure yeah and like for the people that get like injured what is your view like have you got any sort of philosophy when it comes to rehab comeback from injuries uh yeah in terms of coming back from injury it psychologically can be quite difficult. If you haven't made fitness your identity, then you should be fine in terms of embracing the process because it sucks. It sucks. But if fitness is your identity, it's going to be very difficult. If you're the bodybuilder or the weightlifter and then someone takes that away from you, it's going to be very difficult. Um, I dislocated my shoulders when I was young and I did a lot of dinky band exercises given by the physio and they did fuck all. Then I started learning to do things like hanging and hanging with one arm and hanging with one arm with a weight in my hand. And it just completely changed my shoulder mobility and my strength. So if you're getting injured, your technique might suck or you might be weak where you need to be strong, i.e. in the extremes of motion, maybe the bottom of a bench press so you bounce or the bottom of a squat so you keep bouncing out of the hole or you might lack strength in your muscles to actually hold a position and you might compensate by using heavy, heavy weight. I would say use appropriate weight and realize that the muscle contraction is happening inside. The tool in your hand is not creating a change. The tool in your hand is putting resistance on the muscle that might create the change that you're looking to have. This, nothing, arbitrary tool. If I throw a dumbbell in the air, it's doing nothing, but it's moving through space. If I contract a bicep, 
that contraction of the dumbbell. That's what I'm looking for. So if you feel you're in control of the movement 95% of the time with 5% room for bit of cheating, you should be golden. But if your goal is to move as much arbitrary weight as possible, then you're using inertia, momentum, and the easiest way that your brain can think of to deal with the load rather than a full range of motion contraction. That is the thing that moves the load. And I think that subtlety makes such a big difference. And I think it's a big key part in injury prevention in the long run. I'm using my muscles. And if your muscles and your movement pattern say don't look the same without the weight, more or less, as they do with the weight, then it's likely you're not using your muscles to move the weight in the first place. Very good answer. And it's funny you said it depends on how much you are attached to your body. So this is something I tell my friends as well. Like, uh, like we shouldn't get too attached to our own body because we never know. Like, like we could get some sort of illness and like, which could prevent us from like being physically active. So we do own our body, but um, I think we more own our mind than our body because we don't know like cancer like yeah a lot of these influences are like oh you can you can like influence risks of things such as cancer using your like lifestyle but a lot of the time it's luck i personally believe and like you could get like a serious illness or something else which prevents you from doing sports so i really think it's good that you've got other hobbies as well which develop your mind your creativity so you have something to fall back on. So you shouldn't get too attached to one thing, I, I believe. Attachment is suffering, my friend. And I, don't, I think you're spot on. I think we actually should frequently do, as I said earlier, pre-mortems and prepare. What should I do if I lost this? Um, you know, we, 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 the self-help industry, we're a big mad orgy of mental masturbation now with self-help. But if real self-help was honest, it would teach you to adopt a healthy dose of a pessimistic outlook to complement your optimistic outlook to know that life is shit, you'll deteriorate, you're, you'll probably lose something dear to you at some point, you'll watch someone you love die, then you'll die if you don't die before them, and you're going to have to deal with all this catastrophe of the ridiculousness of life. And that sounds a bit heavy to take a podcast that direction, but then an arm breaks, and in the context of life you realise, well, it's not that big a deal, but when you are the work when your ego is the workout and then that arm breaks you break you literally that's what ego is i i and um i think people get the hard lesson one way or another in life or else they never get the lesson that they need and then obviously they just live in a very unconscious way but yeah i agree the idea of being attached to your body is a recipe for pain i've had to learn the hard way i've had some very painful experiences in my life involving a very much like a, a dark night of the soul experience and it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Fair Yeah, like, yeah, it's not, I wouldn't say it's really going into a pessimistic way uh, here, but like, I think it's good just to be aware of, like it helps actually, I think, enjoy life more. Like I was listening to someone who said like the Romans, the Stoics, they used to wake up in the morning and they would think of all the things which could go wrong in the day. And then- Do you know what, Patrick? Do you know what? Think about that. Like. You will get that phone call one day. Like, it's coming. For I always sure. think of that, especially when you live away from home. That call's coming. That, you know what I'm talking about, that dreaded phone call. Uh, on Tuesday at 3 p.m., like, if, if something doesn't happen to me first, or you, you know, to you first, heaven forbid. So, like, the, these things are inevitable. And 
Yeah. I heard something a long time ago that philosophy is merely unlearning everything you think you already know. Yeah. And I think we could do with being our own philosophers in life. Yeah, and the, the problem is, is the phone call will probably come when you least expect it as well. So you'll be like on the high and then you'll get the phone call. So uh, I know, yeah. I know. And like you assume it's going to be from someone older than you. What if it's from someone you love who's younger than you? It's before the time. Yeah, but it happens. And I think we should just celebrate life as it is in general. And like I was listening to Lex Friedman. I don't know if you've heard of him. And he said like he, he meditates on his morality. So he'll just like spend 10 minutes thinking that it's his last day today on the planet. And uh, I think it's a good little method to try would you believe i do something similar quite often i remember you told me that you used to lay on the sunbed and just see which thoughts come into your mind <laughs> yeah sometimes it was just what if this is it because there will be a last day i think that's you know something that i still find mind-boggling is you know you get carried away in the flow of life and the stresses of life and uh, you know am i making enough money am i going to be doing enough thing and then your ego takes back over am i successful enough am i going to be seen a certain way and then you start to think oh my god this will end this you know i'll get as many years as i get here and then the world 14.6 billion years whatever the hell it is um recently a friend of mine from school passed away he was one of those guys he was he was a very he was he was my best friend in schools his best friend but we weren't best friends if that makes sense we were friends because of our mutual friend but it was one of those things where as soon as we left school we lost contact completely but in no bad way but he had a routine headache he went for a routine checkup uh, recently and he passed away the next day and it was told that he had a specific condition in his brain and it was always going to happen and it was always going to happen young and it would have happened any time before his 40th birthday and um yeah, it was like, it's weird because I, like, I probably would have never seen the guy again as long as I lived, right? And yet, you know, when something hard hits you because you're in the same year growing up and that's in him and he didn't know that was in him and all of a sudden your little stupid stresses take a very deep perspective. Yeah, something, yeah, you just don't know when it's going to happen. Like when I was at university once, uh, I met, like at a party, I met my friend's best friend and then I met him for the first time and then the week later, he passed away, like in a freak uh, circumstances. So like, it was literally everyone you see, it could be the last time you see them, even if you're seeing them for the first time. So, so true, Patrick, man. Um, I don't know why you've reminded me of this. It's a very different kind of topic, but similar connotations, I guess. I used to work as a doorman in a nightclub. And uh, I, met, I met a guy one time, nothing to do with the nightclub, but that's just that caveat needs to be said. Uh, I met a guy one time, a friend introduced me to him at a house, we just, the three of us playing FIFA back when we were 20, really, really handsome guy, really good looking lad, beautiful girlfriend, um, you know, nothing stand out wrong about the guy, and I thought, geez, really nice lad, really friendly, really social, I was doing door work a year later, and some guy stepped down, down to the door where I was working, absolutely true, I'll never leave me, he was destroyed on, clearly not alcohol, something worse, missing all his teeth, they're all black and missing them all. And he came over to me and he didn't recognize me. And I, it took me a moment to recognize him, but he looked, looked like something bad had happened to him. And you know what, he, he just literally said, I used to have it all, a job, a nice girlfriend, and I fucked it all away because I can't go a day without drugs. He, he said that to me. And then he just kind of staggered away. And this guy 
was night and day from the character that I had met. And I often say to Orla, like I'll often be walking down the street and um, I'm not trying to in any way sound congratulatory, Patrick, but I will often give maybe a homeless person maybe my last five or whatever. And Orla jokes going, babe, we're not going to have enough money for the mortgage because you keep giving all our money away. And I don't know, there's just something very aware in me that we're all one step away from needing help. Everyone takes, I always kind of wonder when you meet someone who's gone down a very bad path, what was that? What was that moment? When did the door pivot? When did the when did the life change and take you from this path there? And then you know the path is so drastically different in a year. But that was a that was a first time decision. I met a lady in Malaga recently, and she was she, she's homeless. She's thirty six. Apparently, she's a former dentist. Now she's homeless heroin addict because she tells you that when she asks you for money. And I always thought, where did the college degree dentist twenty four year old lady? between that and 36, when did that happen and how? And you're here looking at me and my initial impulse is to dehumanize you. Get away from me, you know, get away from me, you're dirty. Because that's, you know, you always believe that you you would have never been that person, don't you? But we're always yeah. just that one one moment away from, we, just, we don't realize how lucky we are in many senses of life is going well for us, Patrick. I don't even know where I'm going with this, by the way, buddy. I'm just reflecting now because you've got me reflecting. Now, it's good to have these thoughts sometimes, but I, I agree. It's easy to just look at someone and say it's their fault, you know, but we don't actually know what happened in, in their life to bring them to where they are today. So we should just always think like, if this happened to me, I'll be, be in their exact same situation. So I need to teach, uh, treat them with love and kindness. And so 100%. to, to rate passion and understanding for sure. Yeah. And to finish on a, on a happy note, so <laughs> on a similar to topic, uh, if someone's going to ask you, what is the meaning of life? How would you answer that to put you on the spot? I suppose, you know, smarter people than me, Patrick, have meditated on this. I suppose all I can answer is the meaning of life. If the meaning of life is whatever you allocate meaning to while you're here, it's probably the only thing I could say. Um, it all seems a bit ridiculous to me when I, and I look at it and you think of someone who lived in 1300 or 1500 and there's no memory of them. And in two generations, I'll probably forgotten. And now with the amount of social media consumption and the amount of posts that come on a given day, you know, we might think we're leaving a legacy, but maybe that's just part of a dilution system that's going to put us all into obscurity. And I suppose, yeah, it's whatever we allocate it to. Yeah. Maybe one day the whole internet will collapse and we'll just lose all of these conversations <laughs> and no legacy will be left behind. But I completely agree. It's up to us to like forge our own meaning. Like there's no inherent meaning, but you create it. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to see how there could be meaning beyond that when you just look at how ridiculous life is. It's just insane. I suppose it doesn't help that I watch a lot of true crime documentaries and you just I get reminded frequently on the... Uh, and I say true crime, like I'm talking really dark shit, like where you're just reminded of the disgusting lengths of pointless suffering humans are capable of inflicting on each other for you know for seemingly no good reason yeah so you, you learn about that and it's a stark reminder of just how absurd it all is yeah. that's just one example that's probably why yeah, if aliens were to exist and they would be looking at, at us from above in space they'll be like why do we want to speak with these people look how absurd they are <laughs> <laughs> i know oh man it's so true Okay, Paul. So it was a pleasure. So you have your own podcast called the the Paul Dermody podcast. So 
I hope everyone listening to this will check out your podcast. You've got lots of interesting conversations as well. Thanks, man. I yeah. appreciate it. And thanks for having me today, by the way. Yeah, you have your own uh, website as well, where people can also check you out and like book consultation calls, right? Yeah. Okay, very good. And then you'll yeah. I'll also, yeah, I'll share your Instagram with the links of the, uh, on, yeah, in the link and the bio so people can contact you. And it was a very like, yeah, deep conversation we took. It was super <laughs> interesting. A pleasure to speak with you again, finally, after over a year now. Are you going to be back in Ho Chi Minh in the relatively medium term future? Or are you, is this chapter closed? We will see. It's always in my plans, yeah, so, to come back. So we'll see what happens next summer. I, but I've got lots of friends I need to see. So I never say the chapter's closed. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it's one of a kind place, isn't it, man? Yeah, it's like so, so good. And like, as we talked about the ego, like, I love the Vietnamese people. They have less, less a sense of an ego. They just share so much. Maybe because it's because I was a foreigner, who knows? But I used to go no, to the I, market. They're so kind. Yeah. They're so kind and nice and generous, man. I, I, I get that very much, that same real community sense with them as well here. I feel very... I feel very at home here, which is such a strange thing to say about Saigon City, isn't it? But I feel so yeah. at home here when I'm here. Very good. Okay, so, Paul, it was a pleasure. Likewise, man. Thanks for having me. I love the chat. Perfect. And speak to you soon. Ciao. Chat soon, man. Have a good day. You too.